everybody. Hope you all had a good rest last night. I'm sure some did and some didn't. But when we have the Lord, we rest in Him, what He allowed. So I'm thankful for that. And He refreshes us hour by hour. My mother's book on her courtship with my dad, the five years that they were in love, but he couldn't promise that he would marry her. But she got to Ecuador two months after he got there, knowing the Lord had called her to Ecuador. And people rumored and teased her and said, you went there because Jim Elliott went there, right? She said, no, I truly believe God has called me there. But what he said to her was even more awful. When she got there, he said, it might be another five years before I'll know whether we're supposed to get married. <laughs> so this is her story. And then I was able to receive my father's letters to my mother, from my mother, and then I was able to find my mother's letters to my father in my mother's attic after she died. So I put together this book and, of course, many letters, and they were amazing writers. My mother wasn't just the only amazing writer <laughs> to me, she seems to be, but my father also wrote amazing letters. So I would recommend it. It came out in 2019, and um, then she, I mentioned last night, did I hold this book up yesterday? I can't remember. Okay. This is Let Me Be a Woman. And in the 70s, when feminism became very big, my mother decided that Christian women needed to hear the biblical perspective on femininity and that Viva la Difference, which means it's wonderful to have a difference between men and women. That's the way God made it. And so this is the book she made, she wrote for me. I didn't know she was writing it until the week of my wedding. And so my husband and I took this on our honeymoon and we read it. And then she wrote a wonderful book about her family, the Howard family, which was her maiden name. Uh, this is not a prescription for how to raise a family. I was reading it and told her it was depressing me. Because, because it seemed like they were such a perfect family. I said, it looks like you all hardly ever had fights or were naughty or disobedient. She said, oh, Val, we were typical sinners, and I was mean to my younger brothers and sister. She says, this is a description of one Christian family. Okay, so if you young mothers read this, just be aware of that. She was, wasn't saying this is the way everybody should do it. Every Christian family is different. So that helped me when she said that, because I certainly was trying to live up to what they had done. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we're so grateful that we are your children, that you called us to be your children, that you've saved us for an everlasting kingdom. We're so grateful when we learn things from your word that help give us peace and hope. We're so thankful, Lord, for your word. I pray that your Holy Spirit will speak through me. I pray that whatever issue is in each woman's heart, you will speak to them by the scripture. And if I say something, Lord, that is uh, helpful, I praise you. And if I say something that just distracts, Lord, please forgive me and keep me on your path. Thank you, Father, that you are the tender shepherd of your sheep. In Jesus' name, amen. Is that okay? You all can hear me? No, not quite. Okay. You were supposed to have a sound check and I missed it. <laughs> Is this okay if I speak right into the microphone? All right. So I told you about my happy childhood last night. I trusted and believed my mother. She always spoke the truth. And so I just grew into my uh, adolescence believing what she taught, taught me, but of course my own brain and personality, uh, I, wasn't, I wasn't rebellious. I wanted to honor her, but go, going, growing into adulthood, I began to be much more distracted by the world. And when my mother remarried, I was almost 14, uh, I had a wonderful stepfather. He was wise, he was funny, 
very clear in his teaching. He had been a professor as well as a pastor, and he was a pastor, a professor at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, which is where my husband, where my husband was going when I met him. I met him in his second year, and I was in my sophomore year of uh, college. <laughs> I'm smiling because two of my daughters just came in. <laughs> I have three daughters that live in California, so it's a blessing to be here and see them. So they got married in January, and I turned 14 the next month, and my father sent me that summer to a Presbyterian missionary camp. It was for young people. So there were about 300 teenagers, and we were hearing amazing missionary stories, and we were hearing amazing preaching and teaching. I had never been to a camp like that. Um, my mother sent me off to a pioneer girls camp when I was 10, and I was absolutely miserable for two weeks. It was in Canada, and I was freezing, and I had to swim, and I failed the swim test. And it was a very sad time. I missed my mother terribly. And so that was my first camp experience. And then the second time was I, I was 14, and my father, stepfather sent me to New Wilmington, Pennsylvania, to Westminster College. And that, that missions conference has been going on for over 100 years. And it was wonderful. It was really the first time that I understood that I was to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. My mother hadn't used the, that phrase. I just accepted what she said. But it was the first time I understood that I had to follow Jesus as, as a disciple. He was to be my master. And it was an absolutely wonderful week. I came home from that and told my stepfather and mother. I called my stepfather, Daddy. I said, I really, I really understand. I want to follow Christ personally. I want to start reading my Bible and praying. And my mother and father kept journals. And I said, I want to keep a spiritual journal. And so that began, but it was in fits and starts because I'm an easily distracted person, not as focused as my mother was. She was very focused, and I have a couple of children like that, but I also have a couple of children that are more like me, and uh, it's, it's interesting how God works in our personalities. But I had a good high school experience with Christian friends. I was in a Christian youth group, and I'm very, very thankful for that. So I didn't get into trouble during high school. Um, but I got off to college thinking, of course I'll go to Wheaton College. That's where my parents went. And of course I'll be a good student. I had finally gotten into the National Honor Society my senior year of high school. So I thought, sure, I can, I can do college. But I did not know how undisciplined my own heart was. So for two years, I struggled with knowing that I should study, but really wanting to have fun with friends. Really struggled with that. Felt like a complete failure because, of course, people expected me, the only child of Elizabeth and Jim, to be as good a student if they knew of their uh, student years. And of course, they graduated magna cum laude. And um, I, I struggled with undisciplined and I think I still do because of the way I'm made. But thank the Lord that uh, he drew me to himself through a very difficult relationship with a girlfriend that really was up and down and sometimes awful and sometimes so fun. And finally, I got a single room for my junior year. And I got serious again about reading my Bible. It was almost every January. I got to read my Bible every day, and it's just fits and starts, and, uh, you know, sometimes doing well at it, and sometimes not reading the Bible or praying. But I just assumed, and I did have a really good last two years at Wheaton, and I was an English lit major, and I loved my classes, and I loved my teachers, so I really worked hard, and but I assumed that the Lord was going to give me a husband right after college. I, people would ask me, what do you want to go into, and what kind of work what career do you want to have? And I had no clue. I uh, thought, well, I'd love to be a mother, and I'd love to raise children, and so I'd read to them a lot, and that's about all I knew at the time that I <laughs> graduated from college. So the Lord um, gave me Walt Shepard. When I met him was the beginning of my sophomore year. My stepfather was dying. This was the first lesson in God's sovereignty 
when my stepfather had cancer for nine months in June, he got it in December and in June, everybody of course was praying like we all do for healing. My mother came to me and I was so positive. I'd give my mother verses about healing and leave them on her pillow. And I was so hopeful that my stepfather would be healed. And my mother came and said, Val, I think we both need to accept that probably your daddy is not going to be healed. And I said, why not? God is able to heal. And she said, because he doesn't want to live. He doesn't want to have the fight. He doesn't want to fight against the cancer. Um, he is ready to go to heaven. He was only 64. And I kind of frowned at her and went on my merry way, thinking, no, he's going to be healed. And I happily would go in to visit him at home when he came home August and September He'd had all the radiation, chemotherapy, and surgery that he could have, and he was ready to die. And I said goodbye to him to go to Wheaton my sophomore year. Walt was in the living room the day before meeting my mother. Walt is my husband. And she was interviewing him to be a helper because he had been an orderly in a hospital. And she did not know, of course, how long my stepfather would live, but she thought she needed a seminary student to do errands to help move him. He was a big man. And uh, so I met Walt and looked down at the floor as soon as I met him because I thought he's really good looking. I'm not going to look at him too much. <laughs> but went off to college and uh, sophomore year again was difficult, but uh, he died three days later. When my mother called me, I was unpacking for in my dorm room and she said, Val, he's in a coma. He probably will die tonight. And my mother was strong and peaceful, but I had no clue of the sorrow and the grief in her heart going on. I really didn't. But uh, she just peacefully said, so he pro probably will go to heaven tonight. And sure enough, she called about 10.30 that night and said he'd gone to heaven. Even though I had been so determined that he would be healed, I just had the peace of the Lord that passes all understanding. It just fell over me. I knew God knew what he was doing, it was the first time I really understood what I had heard my stepfather preach on, the sovereignty of God, but it was my own experience of, he knows what he's doing. He's God. I am not. And so though we can pray for healing, and of course there's no command against praying for healing, um, the Lord doesn't always answer the way we want, but he knows what he's doing. Just like my mother and father thought they were going to be in Ecuador for all of their lives being missionaries to these Indians, but at 27, my father was killed, and my mother had to learn the sovereignty of God at that point. And yes, she was very lonely, and I was able, she gave me all of her journals from 1948, probably 46, through 1956 when he died. And I, as a young woman, was really struck by how much sorrow she had. I, I was this happy-go-lucky kid and really didn't understand the grief that she went through with my father's death. So God gave me Walt Shepard my junior year. We got engaged. Uh, that's another story, but I happened to come home for one quarter because I'd gone to school for four quarters and Wheaton required to take off one quarter. So Walt, Walt's living in the basement and I'm living upstairs and we would laugh about that silly song, knock three times on the ceiling if you want me. <laughs> but anyway, um, we didn't go very far with that song. But anyway, <laughs> we started taking walks together uh, that my junior fall semester or quarter. We fell in love, and by December, he asked me to marry him. And so here's my dream come true. I didn't think about a career again. I just wanted to be a mommy. And when my mother and I were interviewed in Quito, Ecuador, I was five years old on the Christian radio station in Quito, which still broadcasts around South America. The interviewer said, Valerie, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said in a funny little voice, I just want to be a mommy. The Lord gave me that um, desire. God's grace was not something I really understood. I believed there was God's grace, but I didn't understood, I understand what it meant in my own heart when I married Walt. So we charge into marriage happy. 
I've got a wonderful husband and wonderful pastor, and I think I'm going to be a wonderful wife and a wonderful mother, not having had much experience with sin, except those two years, sophomore and freshman year of Wheaton, when I was so undisciplined. Um, but I get married thinking I'll be a natural at it. I love babies. I love children. So why shouldn't I have lots of children? I told my husband we, I wanted 10 to 12. And uh, he told me after eight that we were done. And uh, I'm glad he said that because I remember having a newborn in my arms and a toddler walking around, if it was a boy, peeing. <laughs> Even though I had tried very hard to train them before the baby came. But uh, I remember thinking, what did I think I was doing? Why did I think this would be so easy? It was difficult. And uh, the first Sunday that our second born had been born, had been one week old, I was sitting uh, on the couch with just my bra and panties or slip on and trying to nurse the baby and wanting to make it to church one week after the baby was born and trying to get Walter dressed. He was the two-year-old. And uh, Walt came home between Sunday school and church because I had said, please come pick me up. I really want to come to church. And I was a mess of tears, just falling apart. And uh, he said, what in the world's wrong? I said, Walter just peed on the carpet. I'm trying to get dressed. I still have to nurse the baby. You know, I, I was a mess. He said, you don't have to go to church. <laughs> so I, of course, expected to have it all together right away, and I didn't. But the more children I had, the more I had a little one and a toddler, and I would think, why did I think I could do this? But then as they would grow, I would think, it's wonderful having children. I love having children. And I really thought that what I'd been taught by my mother, her word was truth, and I would speak the truth to my children, and they would want to obey. And out of eight children, I have four difficult ones and four quite easy ones. Um, four that were uh, compliant and wanted to please, and four that never wanted to please me. So I had quite a struggle. I had five children around the table one day. We were in uh, Laurel, Mississippi, and I was horrified at the way the three older children were treating each other, nasty and being mean, and especially Walter being mean to the younger two sisters. And I just fell apart, left the table, went back to my bedroom crying. And Walt came back to say, what is the matter with you? And I said, why are they so mean to each other? Now, remember, I was an only child. I was compliant. I had little Indian children following me around, wanting to do whatever I wanted them to do. I was the only little blonde white kid. And of course, I was an anomaly to them. And I they were fascinated by whatever I suggested. So I thought raising children would be just like that. They would follow me around. They would want to listen to what I had to say. And oh my, it was quite a shock for this young mom. And uh, I am glad that my husband said, eight is enough. Uh, I really saw that I wasn't a very good manager. I really wanted to be strict, so there were some days when I was strict and clear, and there was a rule to be followed, and there was this punishment, and then there were some days when I would go, I don't really want to follow that rule. <laughs> and it was, it was um, inconsistency that just made me feel more and more like a failure, so that by the 15th year of marriage, we had moved to California. Everybody in Mississippi thought we were absolutely crazy to move to California. We had five children. I did not want to move to California. I wanted to live in the jungle, raising children where they could run around free and not have TVs and not have all the technological stuff that is available. And so for five years in California, I was uh, trying to accept the fact that we lived there. But I do remember the first Sunday, I think my husband was candidating to be pastor of this very small church, 30 people in Orange County. And uh, I, rem I sensed, as I sat in church while it was preaching, the Lord said to me, will you love these people? And I knew my lesson from Louisiana when my father-in-law had said, how about loving them? When I asked, how do I chat with them? And it was a convicting question, but it didn't 
really come out in my service and love for these women in that church for five years. I really hoped we were going to the mission field, get away from all this entertainment industry, technology, so I could raise children in a simple life like I was raised. And my husband had the same desire. He was raised in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, then called the Zaire. So by 1992, which is the 15th year, I felt like a failure as a mother. I had seven children. I felt like some days I love this and some days I do not know. It's not that I didn't want the children, but I don't really know how to be a mother. I'm really a failure. And my mother would come to visit and she was always an encouragement and I was very thankful for her encouragement, but I would, we'd all try to get straightened up and doing well when she came in. You know, I remember Elizabeth rushing around saying she was the second born saying, we've got to get this house cleaned up. Granny's coming. We got to get organized. And, um, I think my mother heard about that and she laughed and she said, you all are doing the best you can. And she said, there is no reason to be condemning yourself to me. And I said, oh, mama, I want it to be just like her, disciplined, focused, concentrating and being very faithful to follow through on her word. I would make a rule like, okay, if you don't, uh, if you don't clear the table, this will be what happens. You're going to have to uh, help me make the meal or you're going to have to clean up the dishes all by yourself or something. Uh, and then the next, like I said, the next day or two, I go, oh, yeah, I made that rule. i got to follow it. I don't want to follow it. You know, I just really had a wishy-washy heart. My husband was feeling a failure as a pastor with about 30 to 40 people. A couple of people left, and it really made him upset. And in Southern California, with huge churches growing by leaps and bounds, you know, he thought he had to be a success and help our church grow, and he didn't see it happening, and he felt like, I I'm going to leave the ministry. He was at that point. He thought, even though he hated plumbing, he could be a better plumber than a minister. He went down to Westminster Seminary, and he had been told there was a pastor's group meeting just one Saturday for the day for encouragement. He thought, I'm going to keep my mouth shut because I don't want people to know that I feel like a failure and I don't, want to I don't want people to know how many people are in our church or how many people have left, which really wasn't more than two couples, I think. He came back from that and I had our seventh, Theo, in arms. And he said, Val, would you like to do a Bible study with me? And I looked at him shocked because we'd not done a Bible study together, just the two of us. I said, how much time does it take? <laughs> and homeschooling, of course. And I loved getting up early, but I loved my own time to read the Bible. I just couldn't imagine how we could add on a time where we did a Bible study together. He said, it's a correspondence course. We will have homework. We will have scripture to memorize. And we will talk to a counselor trainer each time we finish a lesson. Some of you have heard of the Sonship Course by Jack Miller, and that day Walt had heard Jack Miller say, Hi, my name is Jack, and I'm a recovering Pharisee. That struck him. He had never heard that expression before, and he went up to him afterwards, and he said, Dr. Miller, I, I really want to know what you mean. That, that uh, hit my heart like a two-by-four, but I, I want to understand why you said that. And Dr. Miller said, well, I've written a study on Galatians, and that's a study that I'm offering to people as a correspondence course. Do you think you and your wife would like to take it? So that's what he was asking me to do. And so we did. We took it slowly, and we did our studies in the evening. We would listen to a tape of Jack Miller, and we would memorize, and then we would talk to a counselor. But we had to find a time that none of the children would interrupt so once every two weeks at 4.30 in the morning, we got up to talk to our counselor on the East Coast, and it changed our lives because we learned about the grace of God that we really hadn't been living in the grace of God. We learned uh, that we'd been adding to all that Jesus had done for us by what we, ought, we thought we ought to do as a Christian husband, Christian Christian wife, pastor, and wife. Um, I thought it was all about if I could just have the house organized and have everybody being obedient and honoring us and everybody happy, I'm doing a good job. 
And of course, if people said to me, I'd sit in a row with all my children uh, next to me and I was uptight because they better behave in church. I was not at all thinking happily worshipful thoughts. I was up, you know, I was uptight about how they were behaving. And uh, so it was all about how I disciplined them. And my husband, of course, was thinking about being a successful pastor. It meant that everybody should love one another and everybody should be flocking to the church to hear the word of God preached. And for me, it was very similar. We all should be loving one another and we all should, the kids should be very thankful to hear the wisdom that comes from the mom and dad at the table. And why are they not interested? So this day that I went running back to cry, Walt said to me, what is the matter? And I said, why are they so mean to each other? He said, they're sinners. And I looked at him like, well, I know that, but we're, we're training them to be obedient. We're training them to be kind. I'm always saying to them, be sweet, be kind. And he said, Val, I was the oldest brother. I had three sisters below me. I was nasty to my younger sisters. I said, you were? He was in a Christian family, of course. He said, yeah, you've got to accept the fact that we've got normal children who are sinners. Again, I had not experienced conflict growing up. And so I began to see reality, began to think, well, I've got to straighten them out, you know, love each other, but you can't put the spirit of God into your children's hearts. You can have rules and you can expect obedience and you can definitely have uh, punishments for disobedience, but the spirit that it's done in, it was all about We've got to get this right. And if people patted me on the back and said, or on the shoulder and said, you are doing such a good job with your children, I would thank them. But inside my heart was miserable because I knew how much sinning was going on before we got to church. And in the car, of course, on the way to church, there was selfishness. There was meanness. And I was just, I was shocked. So as we did this study, we realized we'd been adding to what Jesus had done in order to try to be approved of by God. I didn't know that the cross of Christ was enough for everything, sanctification, justification, and glorification. I really thought I've got to work hard to fight against my own sin, my children's sin, and my husband's sin, and I was very critical of him. He was never critical of me. He's the most gracious man. He was kind, and I would say, okay, we've got to talk about what are each of our faults and what we're going to do about them. And he would say, you don't have any faults. And I would go, come on, Walt. You know I'm a sinner. No. He said, I'm doing the sinning, and that's what causes the problems. And I said, honey, I'm causing just as much with my sin. So we came to the realization that we were Pharisees, and it was all about how good did we look to the church to anybody that we met. Did we look good? I had never seen it in that light until we read Galatians. Galatians 1, 6 through 7 says this. <clears throat> and the whole Jesus plus mentality is, it's so easy to fall into. I know Jesus, but I've got to do this and this and this in order to be approved of, whether it's by, by people or proved up by God. And Jesus, uh, and Galatians, Paul says, verse 6, chapter 1, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Well, of course, I didn't know that I was distorting the gospel of Christ when I was trying to make my children be wonderful. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, as now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Now, I had heard of legalism, but I had not realized how legalistic I was. Again, my mother teaching me obedience. I got punished if I disobey. It was very clear and simple. And because I wanted to please her, we didn't have a whole lot of punishments. 
but I remember this sorrow in my heart when I had disappointed my mother. Growing up thinking I'll get, I'm going to have a wonderful family and it's going to be like Little Women or um, Cheaper by the Dozen or an old, old book called Five Little Peppers and How They Grew. I loved those books. I was, I was an 11, 12-year-old girl and thought, that's what I'm going to have. I'm going to have a happy, wonderful family. And of course, being an only child, I wanted to have children that had siblings. And he says, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So I don't think I realized until this study that I was really distorting the gospel by doing all the right things, having obedient children. If they were obedient, wonderful. But if they weren't, I was upset, horrified. And you know, it was really the last two children. I had my seventh child. While we did this study, he was a baby. It was those, those two children that I understood the Spirit of God was with me as I disciplined them. Now, I'm not saying that I did it perfectly with them. I just was aware of the presence of the Lord to help me train them and punish without anger. Now, I do remember times of punishing my older children without anger, but I also remember being very frustrated and angry. And I had never had those feelings before getting married, except with this friend that I got very frustrated with. But I was very, very aware. I am a sinner at the foot of the cross, and I need God's grace to help me do anything, whether it's keeping my own rules and trying to keep the house in order, or whether it's honoring God and loving the people in the church. So when God, I sensed his saying to me, will you love these people? took five years before I really began to be open and friendly in the way of being humble with the women in the church to share what struggles I had. Before that, I didn't want to share because I wanted to be an example. So here I was trying to be an example, but that's what Pharisees do. <laughs> and we all have the spirit of Pharisaism because we all want that is a natural human tendency to look good to other people. And so if we're always apologizing because we're not doing something right, it's because we're so worried about what people will think. And everything is taken care of at the foot of the cross. Everything was done by Jesus. We do not need to add to what Jesus did. So this study changed my husband's and my lives. Galatians 5, 6 was we had to memorize quite a few of the verses. And 5, 6 says this. Um, looking at my glasses, but I think I can see. Let's see. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For through the Spirit, by faith. What was my faith in before? All about me. I had a great mother had amazing father that I didn't know, but I should be wonderful because they were wonderful. And here it says, we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Any of the things that we do count for anything, but only faith working through love. Have you all ever thought about that verse before? Only faith working through love? I was biting and devouring my family by frustration, angry words. I was biting and devouring my husband with criticism. I even said to him the first 10 years we were in Laurel, Mississippi, and I would say, if you got up earlier and read the Bible more, you could be a better pastor. That is not the way a wife should talk to her husband. I was, I was really determined that we were going to be a godly family, but it was all about how we did it. It wasn't all about resting in the work of Christ. At verse 13, chapter 5, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled 
in this one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. And all I knew when I criticized my husband is that he got very quiet and very sad. Ladies, if you have a quick tongue, watch out. You have to ask the Holy Spirit for help to keep your mouth shut. And you have to ask the Holy Spirit to give you gentleness and kindness and real, genuine love towards your husband, as well as towards your children, as well as towards the people in your church. So when I began to share with the women, and we had a weekly Bible study, I wasn't teaching it at the time, sharing my struggle with sin, I opened up and I began to love the women because we were being real with each other. Is it time for me to stop? Am I supposed to stop at 10.30? I can't remember. No, really, I need to know what the schedule is. Thank you. I can go on and on, as you can tell, so I don't want to do that. Okay. So I was struggling to be the perfect mother. My husband was struggling to be the perfect pastor. And we had high expectations. And, of course, since we had wonderful parents, both of us, we expected that we should be able to do things so easily and wonderfully. So Galatians 5, 6 was a huge step in understanding that Christ had set us free and he was going to be the one abiding in us to help us love not only each other in our family, but love the people around us. I had ideals. I sat by my grandma Howard, my mother's mother, mother of six, very disciplined home, and you'd read that in the shaping of the Christian family. They had devotions every day at 715. They had devotions after supper at 6.30 every day, without fail. And I thought, we should do that. Why not? Well, I struggled to make my husband be regular about that, you know, and kept saying, I, I can't even remember the first couple of years. I can't even remember I'm supposed to read the Bible every day <laughs> to the children or to the family. And um, my ideals, a neat house, this is what Grandma said, you keep your house neat and tidy. You teach the children to put away everything after they get it out. They put it away where it belongs. And you teach them to obey. And you spank them if they disobey. And you start them very young, even as a little baby. She said if a child doesn't know by the time 18 weeks, if a child doesn't know the word no from the mother and father, then it's too late. Well, I wasn't quite that, you know, I didn't quite follow that 18 weeks. But she, she would simply put her hand on the back of a baby when they were newborn. If they were starting to cry when she had a schedule for them. It was four-hour feedings for every single one of them. Some children don't thrive with four-hour feedings. But so she, she said this to me, we have a disciplined home. So I jump into marriage thinking this way I'm going to do it. Then I go to La Leche League. That doesn't help you any. La Leche League tells you nurse any old time. It's fine. They need to be nursed. Just nurse them any old time. I remember my daughter Colleen with her first one. This is her first. She only has one. But she's saying, I'm trying to get her on this three-hour schedule. And I said, it takes some time. <laughs> so <clears throat> my ideals of the neat and tidy house, the obedient and sweet children, always loving each other, my ideal of having the family Bible reading every day, my ideal of singing hymns every day, which we do did do pretty regularly. Um, those ideals became idols. You know ideals can be turned into idols? You might have heard that before, but that was a whole new truth and revelation to us in this study of sonship. Now, when I was 14, my father sent me off to this Westminster Missionary Conference. I told them that I wanted to follow the Lord. I wanted to read the Bible every day, and it was a struggle. As I said, fits and starts. But one of the verses I found was um, Nehemiah 8.10, which at the end of, the, of that verse says, The joy of the Lord is your strength. And as a 14-year-old, I marked that verse, wrote it down on everything, and I said, that's my life verse. I felt that I was a joyous person. I love to be cheerful in the morning. I thought, I already have joy, so that's my verse. 
15, 16, 20 years later, I'm sitting down reading the Bible by myself, come to Nehemiah 8.10. It suddenly dawned on me, it said, the joy of the Lord is your strength. A whole new perspective. It wasn't all about my joy, because my joy goes up and down. My cheerfulness goes away as soon as somebody does something wrong. You know, it was just up and down. And I realized the joy of the Lord was absolutely consistent. He always has joy over us because we are his children. And Zephaniah 3.17, he shouts over us with joy. He sings over us with his love and his joy. I love those two verses, but it was at that moment when I was reading that verse again, I realized, oh, it's not about my joy and my cheerfulness. It's the Lord's joy. And what a solid foundation we have in that. He has joy over us. And one day, because I was frowning, these frown marks, you know, get deeper as you get older. And I was telling my husband something in frustration. And he said, Val, you're frowning. He said, can you just lift up your eyebrows and not frown? And I tried, you know, and he said, do you think that the Lord is frowning at you when you don't do right? And I said, yes. He said, he loves you with an everlasting love. And when he sent Jesus on the cross, that means that love is absolutely dependable. He is not some days getting a little disgusted with us. He is not thinking, boy, I don't know if she'll ever learn. No, he is shouting over us with joy because we are his children when we trust in his son. And it's all about his glory not ours. So those ideals having become idols in my own heart, I was amazed to have that new understanding that even though I had all these nice ideals and they looked great on paper, to live them out and to live by the grace of Christ with talking to my children, with kindness, that'll come in the second talk about parenting with grace. But it was all new to my husband and me. And so a little illustration of my frowning. My son, our oldest, was 14 when we started our sonship course. And actually, no, he was 16. But at 14, we were doing a Bible study on Philippians. And you come to the verse, have no anxiety or have no worries about anything whatsoever. I'm quoting a J.B. Phillips translation. Have no anxiety about anything whatsoever, but in everything, by prayer, make your requests known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I loved that verse. My mother had given it to me when I was in eighth grade, absolutely sure I was failing my science and math classes. I came home, and she had typed it out, a neat little piece of paper, and it was on my desk. I remember reading it, thinking for the first time in my life, that verse is for me. I am to stop worrying and thinking that I'm a failure. I'm to know that the love, the Lord loves me, and I can give this worry about my grades to him. And again, we're doing a Bible study in California, and my husband comes upon this verse as we're uh, studying Philippians, and he says, I'm sure each of you have some kind of anxiety, Maybe some of the anxieties are huge in your heart. Maybe some of them are small. And I thought, my son's growing his hair long, and I don't like it. And I'm getting anxious about it, very anxious. I was of the New England sort of traditional classic look, especially because my mother was that way. And she one time said to me, as she saw Walter's hair growing longer, she said, couldn't you get him to get it? Couldn't you get his hair cut? And I looked at her after I'd had this discussion with my husband. He said, this is not a moral issue. We are not going to die on this mountain. We're not going to make a war of it. We're going to let him wear, grow his hair long. I grew my hair long when I was later teenager years. And so don't even worry about it. I frowned. I said, but, but granny, my mother really, keeps asking me, is he going to get his hair cut? And I said, he said, don't worry about your mother. She has nothing to do with what we're doing with our family. I said, okay. And that verse, that night, I realized how anxious 
I was about Walter. I really thought he was going into the counterculture. He was really going to go into drugs. He was really going to go rebellious, and he didn't. He was quite a respectful son. Now, he was quiet. We didn't really know what was going on in his heart, but he did not give us trouble. So my, my husband had just said, give him to the Lord. Take that little, what seems like a huge anxiety to you. Take that anxiety to the Lord. Give it up. Just give it up. And we began to see that we were failures. We were going to be failures throughout our lifetime. At anything we thought, we should be able to do this well. Now, yes, some of you have certain gifts. You will do very well at accomplishing the things that God wants you to do. I'm not saying you will always fail with every gift you've been given, but I am saying that if we can see ourselves as failures at the foot of the cross, we are all on level ground, and we are all in the dust at the foot of Calvary. And Jesus has died for us, and he will help us to get to heaven. He will live in us to be kind, to help us to be kind, to be loving. He will give us new eyes for those people that we think we don't like, that we might frown about. And he gave me a new sense of, Walter is the Lord's. I am not going to keep fussing at him, especially Sunday mornings when other people would see him at church. I didn't like his hair, but I stopped the fussing. I had to begin to say to myself, smile at him instead of using those frown lines is that I'm not very pleased with him. So I really did. I began to give Walter up to the Lord is going to work in him. He is a young man. He's choosing to have long hair. So what? Um, God accepts us and loves us as failures. He does not look down on us and say, oh, you didn't get that right, did you? Ha ha. Happens all the time. He does not have a human way like we do of being disgusted or irritated. He loves us with an everlasting love, as my mother used to say on the radio. And that's what the Bible says, and underneath are the everlasting arms. Don't forget that. In your busyness, you have many different gifts. Some of you are gifted with your education. Some of you are gifted with, with um, organizing. Some of you are gifted with keeping a clean and neat house. Some of you are gifted with being able to be consistent with your children and teaching them obedience. Some of you are gifted in hospitality. Many different gifts God has given each of you. Or some, you might say, you have one gift. That's fine. But you use that gift for his glory, not because you want to be shown some approval. And I was, at the time, before really doing sonship, it was all about, I've got to get this right. I've got, we've got to have people in. I've got to do a beautiful meal and a delicious meal. And I read Radical Hospitality, which I think was Karen Burton Maines. And I read um, Open Heart, Open Home, way back when I was a young bride. And they, they made a lot of sense. And I thought, yes, of course, we should have people in our home because we love them. Did I really love them? No, it was all about, I better do this well. And one day I looked at our red beans and rice, which we often had because we lived in Louisiana, and I had beautiful china plates that had been given to me as wedding presents. I looked at the red beans and rice on this beautiful china, and I thought, that doesn't look nice at all. <laughs> and so I, I kind of complained to my husband. I said, you've always said we should do red beans and rice, but they just don't look nice on our china. And he said, honey, it's one of the easiest dishes we can do to have people in. And what's it about? Is it about showing off our food? Or is it about loving the people that are coming into the house? I said, you're right. It's about loving the people. His righteousness over us, covering us. I wear the robe of righteousness that Christ gave me. I am not righteous, but I can cover my sin by his blood and his righteousness. And it says in Revelation that we will be, we will be wearing robes of white. Not because we were such amazing Christians but because of what Christ did for us. Get that into your head. It is his obedience that gives me perseverance. It is his perfect life on earth that gives me peace. He did it for me. It's his absolute will. It was his absolute will to do his father's will. Is it my absolute will to do my father's will? Or is it all about 
showing off what I can do well. So watch, ladies, when you sit in front of your Bible. You may be just checking it off for the day. I've done, I've done the Bible reading. But make sure that you spend some time meditating on one or two verses and asking God what does he want you to learn from that verse. I don't do this every day. But when I do it, I'm so blessed by his presence because I am focusing more on him than on my own troubles. And yes, I have to throw my troubles upon the Lord. I had a, an older lady who was a mentor. She was my mother's best friend at Plymouth, and not Plymouth, Prairie Bible Institute in Alberta, Canada. Her name was Elizabeth Paith, and she became a doctor. And I got to know her better when we lived in California. She lived in San Francisco, and she, we visited several times. And she said, Val, I have, she adopted five children at the age of 43 or 45. And she said, I have one child that is absolutely a mess or a disaster, as some people would say. He is always causing trouble, and he's the oldest of the four brothers, and they had one little girl. And he, she said, I'm constantly crying out to God, what am I going to do with Danny? And so she said, I'll wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning. Some of you have had that experience. And you're wide awake. She said, I'll get out of bed, leaving my husband snoring away. And I go to the room where I read the word. And, and I read one of his promises, like Isaiah 49, 25. I'm going to give it to you just to make sure. Let me look it up make sure. Yep, Isaiah 49, 25, which says, I will contend with those who contend for your children. So she said, I'll take my Bible and I'll put it on the floor and I'll stand on it because I'm standing on the promises of God. She loved, she loved a little object lessons like that. And then she said, and if that doesn't give peace to my soul, I will take Danny, an image, or a, not an image, um, pretend I have Danny in my hands and I throw him on the lap of God, because God is sovereign, and God loves him even more than I do, and God knows what to do with Danny, and I, I, that anxiety over what am I going to do with Danny, I just literally throw it onto his sovereign lap, and then I go back to bed, and my husband's still snoring away, and I lay down on the mattress, which is called the promises of God. Three things she does to remind herself that God has promised certain things for us and for our children. And this went on night after night. Her husband, her son kept continuing to cause trouble through high school. He was put in jail several times. He had ADHD. Uh, she just continually threw him upon the lap of God's sovereignty. And when I saw her the last time, about one year before she died, she said, do you know, I told you about how Danny was such a difficult child. Now he's 30-something. She said, he is absolutely the most wonderful son out of the four that I have. She said, all those prayers and tears, God heard them. I was frustrated, but I just kept giving him to the sovereign God. And that is what we do with our troubles. Just throw it upon his lap. He will take care of it. His timing is not our timing. We totally have this hurry up and get this answered attitude, but he says, wait on me. And that's why Isaiah 30, 15 to 16 are some of my favorite verses, because we run about trying to do all the things we think we have to do. We forget that he said, Mary has chosen the better part, which is to sit at Jesus's feet. And Isaiah 30, 15 to 18 says this, in returning and rest, there's a painting out here, you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your confidence. But you were unwilling. We're unwilling to sit still and read his word and listen to what the Spirit says through his word. Now, I'm not saying I hear whispers of the Spirit every day. I just know that it is a discipline that I need to sit down and read. And so he says, but you were unwilling. The Israelites were going after other people's strength, like the Egyptians' horses. And you said, no, we will flee upon horses. We're going to make it. We've got these horses from, the, from Egypt. But he said, therefore, you shall flee away. I'll let you go. 
and you say, we will ride upon swift steeds, therefore your pursuers shall be swift. God is allowing difficulties. A thousand shall flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five, you will flee till you are left like a flagstaff on the top of a mountain, like a signal on a hill. What's he asking us to do? In returning and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and in confidence shall be your strength, but you would not. And then it says, verse 18, don't forget these verses. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. Therefore, he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. He knows the right thing to do. Blessed are all those who wait for him. What did it say at first? The Lord waits to be gracious to you. And then it says, blessed are all those who wait for him. Now, waiting can mean serving. Of course, you're serving your family, you're serving your church, whoever, you're serving. But it also means sitting still and honoring God by reading his word. Now that, it's very convicting every time I think about that. Because I've many years read the word of God and checked it off. But through that sonship study, I began to understand that I'd been living for my own reputation. I wanted people to think of me as a godly person. But that study really opened my eyes up. I'm at the foot of the cross with everybody else. I used to think that my father and mother were on a ladder uh, of all of us trying to get to heaven. They were at the top because they were so disciplined. And I had so much struggle with discipline. And I realized one day that this truth about we're all in the dust at the foot of Calvary. We are equally sinners, different kinds of sinners, but we all sin. Not only does he say he waits to be gracious to us, but he also tells us to wait on him. Then you go over to 64, Isaiah 64, and it says, now they're using again the word wait. I was thrilled when I found this too. The prayer of Isaiah, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. And we want to see dramatic answers to prayer, don't we? As when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations might tremble at your presence. And we should be praying for Russia and Ukraine. We should be praying for all of the difficult places in the world. When you when you did, sorry. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down the mountain. The mountain you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old no one has heard or perceived by the ear, no eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. Ladies, do you hear this? You must wait on the Lord. It is the most difficult thing in the world to do. Think of my mother, absolutely in love with Jim Elliott. She had to wait on the Lord. And you know what verse they decided on the day that they did decide to get married, October 8th, 1953. We have waited for him. Blessed be God. And it's Psalm 103, I think, but I'm not positive of that. I will look it up. We have waited for him. And he has shown us his glory. Wait on the Lord. He is worth waiting for. We are not good at waiting. But when he teaches us by his spirit to sit still and to be quiet, even if it's just with one verse, he teaches us his patience, his perseverance, his unending love, his everlasting love, his absolute power. He knows what to do in every difficult situation. He has an answer, but we must wait on him. That quietness and that confidence, if you will allow yourself to sit quiet and ask the Lord to do something about this problem, he will eventually, but he wants to see that you want his will. Now, yes, we can ask for what we would like. There's nothing wrong with asking. It says, make your requests known to the Lord. 
The peace of God, which passes all understanding, will keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. But keep throwing those things on his lap because we keep taking them back and saying, I got to worry about this. Nope. Keep it in his hands. Jesus plus the things I do? No. Jesus only. He's all we need for sanctification and glorification. Praise God for that. So watch out for your idols, your ideals. Watch out that they're not turning into your idols. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. Psalm 25, all the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. Thank you all.